Real people. Real opinions. Real talk radio. The multi-award-winning Niall Boylan Show. Classic hits. In the studio uh, is Aidan McNally. Good afternoon to Aidan. Hi, Niall. How are you? Now, I got an email from you, Aidan, and I couldn't resist this story because you have had a very interesting life, to say the least. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's been an up and down journey. It certainly has been an up and down journey for you. But let's just go back to the very very start. Okay, you were born in Scarries, North County Dublin. North County Dublin. Yeah, I mean, Shinny actually. Yeah, small Scaris, rural yeah. part of uh, Dublin. Well, people call it Dublin nowadays. Almost it's Dublin, it? but it's country. Yeah, it's, it's a village where Fishing everybody village. where everybody knows everybody. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and you ended up in quite a lot of trouble when you were younger. I mean, were you a bit of a runaway, a bit of a tearaway? Yeah, as a child, I mean, young teenager, about 13, I dropped out of school and um, being a fishing village, I took to fishing on the boats. So what age were you on the boats at? 13, 14, 15, 16. Yeah. Yeah, so you're going out in the trawlers at 15 years of age? Out there, tailing Dublin Bay, Bay Prawns, yeah, fishing mm. um, right. for scaries and it's kind of a man's lifestyle and with that came a lot of drinking, Yeah. Uh, a bit of drugging, dabbling and... Um, Drugs and drink, and a teenager lead to trouble and problems. Yeah, so and did I, you get yourself into any criminal trouble? I found my way into the courthouses and the back of... So they were kind of used to seeing you around the local court. It is, you know, give a dog a bad name, kind of, you do one thing and then all of a sudden you're guilty of everything. So, so you needed money to fuel these habits as well. You might have been getting enough for work, so you decided to get... Well, no, we would have, um, would have fished hard and, and earned good money as mm. a child back in those times. Um, but... A bit of violence with the mm. drunk, yeah, cows, public order problems, and yeah, yeah, these kind of things. And, All right, okay. So uh, at seventeen, you decided I've enough of this. Carry on. I'm, I'm gonna. I'm giving up this this lifestyle of drugs. Well, I was and in drink. jail. Yeah, yeah. I made my way to jail. I was on a fast track. I made my way to St. Pat's, mm. the North Circular Road, and uh, <clears throat> that was like you got to do something now, man. Because yeah, drinking drugs isn't working. No, your yeah. life is just gonna go on the downhill. Mm. Mm. So. When you were 21 years of age, when your 21st birthday, yes. um, you had your first child, the christening of your first child, because you had met a lovely girl. Yes, the, the, my, my first son, at 17, um, through 18, 19, I changed my life. Mm-hmm. Changed it around, no more drugs, no more drink. Was that easy to do, by the way? I had the help of a wonderful adolescent treatment centre run by a mighty man called Father Rock and Cork. I was right. sentenced there. And... Um, it gave me time to go back and do a leaving cert and get back into school and become a child again, become mm-hmm. a teenager. So you educated yourself. And uh, met a great girl and we were going out with each other and we had a baby. And on my 21st, when I turned 21 was the weekend that we christened him. Mm-hmm. Dara was born and beautiful child, big child. And Did you feel to yourself, this is it now, I've made now, I've got a beautiful woman, I've now got a beautiful child. When he was born... There was a feeling came over me that I, I definitely had never felt before. This was like elation at its best. You mm-hmm. know, this, this is... So you're 20 years of age. I, I'm yeah. a father, you know. Yeah. I'm a father. I'm doing things right now. I'm living sober and life is good and I taste it and I feel it and it's, mm-hmm. it's beautiful. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was because it does change your life because your life suddenly doesn't become your own anymore. Your life becomes... Well, this person, this small person's life becomes dependent on your life. Oh, absolutely, so yeah. your life absolutely. changes completely. And, and everybody who's had children knows that, that you mm. basically are sacrificing quite a lot to have a child. Yeah. Because you're responsible for the rest of your life. Yeah, you know? but, but such a great thing that now mm. you have this mini-me or whatever. And yeah, so you got to look forward. And you go back yeah. into all the little plays and you're having fun and, you know, you take your kid and you're throwing him in the air and you're like, look at him and he's laughing. And, mm. 
you know, you're afraid to roll over in the bed in case you squash them. You're totally conscious and aware of this. And, you know, before that, you would have slept for 15 hours straight. Yeah. Now you've got a little person to worry about, I suppose, and so care for. 2011 is a year you'll never forget. Um, 2011. So Dara was born in 1996. And 2011. I know, December, I'm, I know I'm jumping yes, forward. Yes, but you did, you did everything that a father does yes, with a son. Yeah. Um, life happened all between that night. You know, your, your me, relationship broke down. Myself and his mom split up, and I was what you call the absent father. And I ended up going out to the states and fishing in Alaska. And this was fulfilling my own dream as a fisherman, as a kid. You know, the Bering Sea and the Pacific Ocean and these things. But mm, that so, must have been quite a life, by the way, to was, go from you know working and operating the trawler in Scaries mm, to be out in Alaska. We've seen these TV shows. It's like the mecca of commercial fishing. Like that yeah. was if you want to do it and do it all the way right. And I always wanted to do things right mm. now when I was in trouble I still wanted to do it right so I did trouble right yeah. if you know what I mean um, but in 2011 so a lot of great travels and trips around the world to do it fishing and stuff and meeting great people um, in 2011 December I where, where were you that time? I happened to be in Costa Rica which is Central America mm. and um, it's, you know, it's just above Panama, below Nicaragua, small little strip. Um, and in another part of the world was your ex and your son, who is now 15 years of age. Yes, she, we'd been apart and she'd moved mm. on and now had a family and was married and had mm. other children and all this kind of things. Mm. And I'd spent time uh, coming back to Ireland to try and time holidays and come back to be with Dara and uh, different, mm. you know, different family things or summer holidays and... But your ex, your ex got up that morning and she was having a shower. Yeah, well, she um, has has related to me uh, more than mm. once that it was Monday morning calling Dara for school. Um, first call, okay, he didn't get up about 7 a.m. approx. And um, mm. second call, she thought, very strange, he's usually up and into the shower. She said, that's it. Third call, up and into his room and said, collapsed in a heap on the floor because he was turning purple. He was laying dead in his bed and he had just been um, 15 for he turned 15 three weeks prior so 14 and a couple of weeks mm -hmm. and um, to do with autopsies and the situation and nothing registered to show any cause of death. No explanation. No toxicology reports or organ problems or not even a tight muscle. They said if he had a stroke maybe a, some muscle somewhere should be tightened. Mm. And it then is penned down as a sudden arrhythmia death syndrome or sudden Which can happen syndrome. to anybody. Anybody. Your heart, I guess the electronics of the heart, it goes tick-tock, 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 tick. And it just doesn't talk back. So it just stops. And um, Your life ended that day. I get a very long distance phone call to me from a brother. out in. I was in Costa Rica. My brother phoned me. Um, I asked him to tell me. He couldn't tell me. He pleaded with me to call home and speak to my mother. And I was like, just tell me, man. I thought my mother was taking care of my grandmother. I thought my grandmother has died. And, um, you know, I said, I'm in a third world country. I'm on an internet phone, man. Just tell me what's the problem. And he said, I can't. Please call ma'am. And I said, look, pull yourself together. And he said, it's your son. It's Dara. He's dead. And um, that was the moment. That you, can you can remember that phone call like it was yesterday. Oh, I feel it right now. Yeah, yeah that... that um, that was the day that changed my life. Mm. Um, 
go back real quick to becoming a father the first time or the years thereafter, it's like the mighty heir to the throne. You have mm. somebody in your life. And that day, the rope was, was taken from under me. And so, so I travelled back. I mean, that panic. journey but from Costa Rica back, to, uh, your ex was in Limerick. So, you know, going from there to Dublin Airport, well, did, from Dublin I, Airport to yeah, Limerick. I had to source a plane out there first. I found out in the morning. You have to run around and find an airline, find a plane. How are you going to, they wanted to, American Airlines said, you know, we can fly it to New York, we can, which will then get you to Paris, which will then get you to Dublin, and it takes 40 hours. I said, man, I have a funeral to get to. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm ready to try and swim. I, yeah. I got to get there. And so I got Iberia Airlines, the Spanish one, which was direct Costa Rica to Madrid, connecting Madrid to Dublin, walk out to my brother in the car in Dublin, and then drive to Limerick. So we're looking at 14 hours in the air and mm. four hours in the car and all the time the wave of emotion is um, tears. Oh, that, that journey, you must have just wanted to explode. It was a very difficult journey mm. uh, that time because I didn't know. I know now were in you, hindsight. Were you in communication? I mean, this may be personal, but were you in communication with your ex-partner at the time? Did you, did you talk to her? At that time, I had made one phone call from mm. the news yeah. that day and she just said, look... I'm out here shopping for coffins. I'll try and wait. That time. Prior to that, Dara was getting old enough where he had his own phone. He would text me, I'd text him, mm. he'd say, call me, whatever. So, um, being away, our own relationship, I guess, um, had developed differently where we didn't go through the mom anymore. It was like yeah. just us. Yeah. Um, but that morning, yeah, she said, I'll try and wait. I said, I'm coming. I'm sorry. And she's like, well, I'm here shopping for coffins. And I thought... The, the guilt of that must have been... I thought, what a mess. Yeah. You know. Um, and again, I didn't know what to think. Mm. Because the emotion, the shock, the feelings. And just to mention, of course, you know, we're men. And our feelings and our falling down crying doesn't happen in our society, as we know. The stigma yeah. is there. And I had to brave face my way onto a plane through mm. the security line and in with all the crowd and sit. And it was, it was difficult. It was very difficult journey yeah but so the funeral happened and how did you rebuild your life after that because I remember my own mother lost my brother my son her son mm. and I think she was about 65 maybe at the time or well no she was a bit younger actually about 55 and she never recovered yeah she changed as a person she mm. couldn't go out anymore she got phobias mm. that she never had before she literally couldn't and no mother or father expects to lose a son it's um it's the weird cycle in life. Obviously, the, the cliche would be we expect to bury our parents. We don't expect to bury our children before mm. ourselves. But um, the day of putting Dara into the grave um, was a very difficult day. So everything from that mo moment forward, there's a lot of difficult times. Mm. The journey home, burying him, lowering a coffin, putting the lid on a coffin, never to see him again. And like you say, developing phobias, I actually experienced what I believe is called a panic attack after that, a year maybe, mm. where I was in a place, I wanted to come home, and I was back out in Costa Rica, I wanted to come home and put flowers on his grave for his birthday. Mm. And I just had to do it. Mm. And it was like, book the plane, I, whatever it costs, I don't care. And I came to Ireland for five days, flew into Dublin, carried on to Limerick, flowers on his grave, flew back out to my life in Costa Rica. And then I said, what did I do that for? What was wrong with me? Mm -hmm. And it was like a panic attack. It's an anxiety that I never had. Something before. that you just had to satisfy. It's just something that starts happening. Was there you. guilt involved in that? You know, um, 
that maybe you had been absent from his life for a while, although you communicated with him quite a lot. Mm. Was there a bit of guilt? Did you feel a bit a level of guilt? Because I think a lot of people, when they're grieving, feel guilt. I know with my own brother, although we didn't have mobile phones at the time, he wasn't far away from where I was working the night he was in Injacore and drowned. Right. And I always thought afterwards, if only he had a contact at me or called, he knew where I was working, it called up, I could have given him a lift home, this wouldn't have happened. Well, so was there guilt? Well, I guess the funny things that go through your mind, and what was really strange for me as a father with Daryl was the, the sudden death. It's, it's sudden death is what it is. So, it's so there's no explanation. Yeah, and there's no prep. There's not a sick person that you get used to or get some time or anything. It just happened. And then what? Life mm. just changed. The script flipped. So to do with guilt, I had a, a new son. Patrick, but this is true. This is two thousand thirteen. Yeah, and and so you'd met somebody else. Yes, yeah, so I had a girlfriend at the time, and um, you know it was difficult, and she helped helped me kind of yeah ease into life the small ways. I didn't want to go out. No, like you were saying about your mother, I didn't. I didn't want to go to the supermarket and see children. I didn't want to see fathers and their kids in the park. I didn't want to see any of that. So yeah, I, I wanted to. Yeah. stay at home and, and different pace and did it change when, when Patrick came along your, when, your son from your new relationship did that change when Patrick was born um, when I knew she was pregnant first if I, if I may um, I wasn't ready I said to her I don't know if I can do this I'm sorry I did you feel know. like it was, this was kind of like a replacement in some way I, th- I didn't think I could split my love mm-hmm. I didn't know because I, I Dara was the one. I was a young father, so all my emotion and things and my dreams of the future, because I was waiting on the sidelines, hoping that he'd grow up and I wasn't his mom mm. and their life was different. So I thought when he gets old enough, everybody's advice was, he'll get old enough and he'll choose to spend some time with you. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, I have to resign myself to that fact. But that never came to fruition. Mm-hmm. Um, so Patrick was born and it was like a new opportunity for me to shake off the grief of Dara although guilt kicks mm. in when you're having a fun time with your new baby you're thinking yourself you I should be doing that I should be doing that my guilty own. Yeah. because Dara's not here how can I be having how can I laugh when Dara's not here mm. and so it plays with your mind and the guilt comes up that well, the things I missed, I wish it could be different. Why did it go this way? Where is he gone? Because with the sudden death, it, not to take from anybody that has ever lost a child at all, um, I wished there was a logical explanation, like a car crash, mm-hmm. that I could comprehend in, 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 you know, logically. Yeah. But sudden death left me with an empty end and a blank space. So you're, li- so you're, now, you're living in Costa Rica? I was living in Costa Rica. Yeah. Patrick with, with your was... Partner. Patrick was actually helping me rebuild myself. Mm. And it took some time in his life, about eight, nine months old, when I sat in the garden with him in the lovely sun and I looked at him and I felt happy. And I was like, Dara, you can be a father through my eyes, wherever mm. you are. We're going to do this together. We have Patrick. We've, and you, you'll never experience it. You've passed on. But Dara, uh, Patrick is the new light. Mm. And... Um, for a holiday weekend in Costa Rica, we weren't celebrating, per se, July 4th weekend, but it happened to be that weekend. Yeah. July 2014. Yes. Yeah. Um, visited a friend. A friend had bought a, a new house, and it was up the coast, and it, it, it's paradise out there. I mean, mm. it really is paradise. Anything you've ever seen or can imagine, Costa Rica is paradise. And this was Cocoa Beach, um, northwest coast of Costa Rica. So we went to visit his new house. He just bought a new house, and mm. we were going to be the first guests. They were living in six months or whatever. So life was good. Here, here was you, your partner, yeah. Patrick, in a beautiful yeah. home on the coast of a sunny beach. 
life, in, life was starting to turn Patrick, around. Is Patrick wouldn't have known, of course. Um, but he, was he, was, he was going to get everything mm. and some because Darrow was gone. And, yeah. my, and you, you, had all the, you had all this love inside you as a father and you needed to express this exactly. to your new child. So Patrick is now the one that... Now, I, I sprung up at night sometimes. Is, yeah. he, is he breathing? Check, yeah. check the car. We were already talking about this earlier on, actually, yeah. to one of the staff here as a, a young children. There's that whole thing when you wake up and check to see if they're breathing, put your hand on their chest and all mm. that kind of stuff. Well, I had that on edge And stuff. particularly for you, yeah. that would have been more so. Because there was the possibility that um, sudden death and to do with the, the heart could be um, hereditary. Genetic. Yeah. Genetic. To do with long QT syndrome or something. Mm. So, Patrick was going to get it all. Patrick mm. was life again, you so know. So, here you are in this beautiful home. And we're staying over my friends, and because it was a new house to them, the, the whole guest room and everything wasn't really made up, and we were all on blow-up beds. Mm. And um, at five o'clock in the morning, my my dream, as you're sleeping, my dream that I woke to, you know where the dream ties into what's going on? Yeah. sounded like someone was being attacked by an animal, was the bellow that I heard. And um, it was Patrick's mom bellowing is the best word um, she was pulling him out of the swimming pool and um, I sprung up in my boxer shorts and I, I remember standing on their couches coming out of the guest room out to the patio and taking um, Patrick to the side of the pool and performing mouth to mouth and it, he was a year and four months and he died in a drowning accident and um, while, while doing mouth to mouth on Patrick big piece of me could not believe at that moment it's happened again this is my second son to die I knew he doing the mouth to mouth there was a pulse and we got an ambulance an emergency to the hospital and they said we have a pulse and I still only had my boxer mm. shorts on and mm. I'm in the emergency room and the security's trying to keep people back and there was this panic at 6am in the hospital and um, and how did he end up getting out to the pool we have no idea. Okay. He just, um, he just got up and wandered out while you two were There's asleep. a whole mission. Because we were staying on the blow-up beds. Yeah. And he could just wake up and do his own thing. Yeah. And then his, one piece of life was that, like, Patrick had so much confidence in us as parents, he never mm. feared anything. Baby mm. doesn't fear. Yeah. And yet he walked his way to his own death. Mm-hmm. Um, so you thought, here we go again. I, I can't deal with this. I just can't deal with I this. I was in a position to um, graveside funeral and a box into the ground um, for my second son. And I didn't, many times I didn't believe this has happened. Like, mm. I did it, I've been there, but I could not believe or accept maybe that it had happened. And um, being a sober living person, my feelings and emotions were really, you know, fine-tuned, I suppose, and the tears... Was there a temptation at any stage during I both went, Dara's death? I went and back and drank stuff? after Dara's death, after a number of years never drinking, and I wanted to escape. And I drank as much Heineken as I could get in a particular night. But it didn't make me drunk. It, did, mm. it got me to a certain point, and my head was just really confused and horrible, mm-hmm. and I didn't like it. And I'd grown so many years without it that I wasn't used to it anymore anyway. But at the time, I wanted some escape. Those feelings were very hard to deal with. And um, again, how does that affect your relationship then with your partner over there? Well, no. It, because they say that generally couples, couples won't stay together. They won't survive mm. the death of a child. Um, I guess everybody's individual grief is different, uh, no matter who they are. And couples are two people who will grieve differently. 
And so um, you get this, you become kind of like hypersensitive to things. So one word could blow up into something else. Argument, yeah. Because you're both in a different And was there a blaming going on? Was it, were you blaming each other or... No, it's like almost like the rest of the world doesn't understand, but we mm. know the love we felt. Because the grief, as I've learned, is like grieving my children hardens to me the fact of how much I love them. The grief ends up being like, it's just your love for them, but they're no longer there to receive mm. it. The unthinkable has happened. Something that nobody, well, very few people would ever happen in their lives. You've lost one son of 15 years of age, another son just over one years of age, drowned. Mm. And... How do you move on from that? Um, very difficult, literally. <laughs> yeah. Um, I definitely changed your outlook on life. Um, Did you stay in Costa Rica, by the way? I was in Costa Rica, yes. Yeah. Uh, stayed there and, you know, you start visiting a grave. I didn't want to fly home to Ireland because Ireland mm. represented Dara's grave. Mm. And I didn't want to be in Costa Rica because that was Patrick's grave. And mm. just drop me somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic and leave me alone. Mm. Um, it was definitely very much a feeling. Um, I was going to therapy myself. It was difficult out there because they speak Spanish. And to find a group or anywhere to go to to talk out my own feelings. My Spanish is okay, but it's not great. And uh, in that kind of setting, there was nowhere for me to go. And I was with a therapist. And um, what I did do was I started writing. And um, I was writing out my own story, looking back all the way back to when I was a kid, getting in trouble and going mm -hmm. to jail and changing my life and reinventing myself. And then with Dara's death and having to rebuild and trying to be a father again, and then now with Patrick, and I'd say to people sometimes, how many times do you think I can go through this? How many times can I change myself? How many times can somebody just get back up and, and, and go on? But we were talking about this show, the show, the as human beings, we're a lot stronger than we think we are. There's a resilience. A lot of people have said to me, you know, talking to the word strength, you said strong. And, yeah. you know, I don't view it as a strength in me. I think everybody has it. I'm nothing special. Um, it's until you're faced in the middle of it that you just got to get through. I mean, you know, you got... You were talking to me outside when we were having a cup of tea outside and you were saying to me that there was this whole thing too when friends were around, there was whispers like, don't mention, yeah, don't people, mention children. Yeah, people tried to be nice and, you know, if don't someone might say, say the wrong thing, you could see a friend kick someone else in the ankle and say, don't, don't mention children to him, just, just don't say that. Yeah. People try to, they try to keep you safe and they don't want, nobody wants to see anybody hurt. Mm. Nobody wants to see them going through it. And my, my good friends, um, they know I've had a lot of hurt. And they've been great friends through it. Um, but out in Costa Rica, I started writing as a way to take this emotional horror story out of me. And So you believe that getting this out and putting pen to paper somehow is telling, no, almost like therapy in itself. Yeah, but not like, it, it didn't happen for me like the cliche therapy. Mm -hmm. It was just something that I could have easily maybe made a painting Mm. or went out and smashed a piece of glass or something. It's so much inside me mm. that I was only beginning to understand what happened to Dara and Patrick was gone. I mean, these were very short. It was in two, within about two and a half years. And um, Well, you'd only accepted that it was okay to be a father's partner. Yeah, it was really difficult. It yeah. was difficult. And again, to go back to like the stigma of society was we're men, we're supposed to be able to take it. Mm. We're supposed to be able to stand up and keep going. And... Um, it was difficult. It was it was tough. And I can't say what did I draw on or where did it come from. And I liked to always tell myself, I'm Irish. We're stubborn. I'll get mm. through it. Just head down and get through it. 
With the writing and then my book, Two Sons Too Many, came about and um, my therapist at the time said, make it a book. There's a lot of people suffering silence and maybe reading your book, they could understand or get a, they could identify with your story somewhat. As and how you get through the grief of that and how I've you been, deal with those Yeah, being a grieving parent and that life must go on and... You know, Does it make you think that there's more important... You know the way we always think, you know, silly things are important to us or, you know, this is a disaster of a day because such and such is happening or I have to pay a bill next week and or financial worries. Yeah. Does it kind of put everything back into real perspective? Yeah, perspective changes about what is important. And I had a very good friend ask me and he's always said to me for bits of advice or whatever, I said, man, do whatever you can with your children because... Mine are gone, and it's like the classic cliche again. You only miss something when it's gone. Mm-hmm. So you need to I've, value every I've single moment. That. And it's very easy to be complacent and, um, you know, take today or tomorrow for granted as a parent having children. Now, that's my story, the grief of the children. But I know there's people, even without experiencing grief, can get complacent and lose sight or perspective of the value in life like mm. on, on today. You know, um, horrible things are happening to nice people right and now. And what, what do you see in your future? Because a lot of people in your situation couldn't see a future. They wouldn't be able to see too far ahead because they're constantly dealing with the grief of losing two children. Well, that's where the writing came in and, and like, taking on the projects. And um, I have a new book out, 17 in Life, which goes back to when I was 17 and in all that chaotic trouble as a teenager. I guess diving into projects or something... That will keep so you, you have occupied. to keep busy. Yeah, because there's an always on the fence is a very dark area to wallow in mm-hmm. and be damned. And do you go back there much? I try not to. And that's part I mean, of when, you, when you're on your own at night or, you know, you're sitting there and, you know, maybe nothing's really happening. Do you go back to that time? Do you go back I, to that moment when you, when, you, when, you, when you gave Patrick CPR or when you came home to Limerick to Dara? Do you go back to those yes. times? Uh, you could watch... Uh, an ad on the TV and something will trigger and the tears will flow and you will take yourself way back. Mm. And I try to practice like my own breathing. It's not full on meditation, but similar to meditation to slow it all down, get back to the here and now and just breathe. Mm-hmm. And when I can get it back down to the bare basic simplicity, now we can build on that. Mm-hmm. And that might happen today after the show or I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, these do you things. Think, do uh, I mean, uh, this is a difficult question to ask you. But are you happy now? Are you back? Are you are you back to being happy in your life? In some sense, you will never get over the grief of losing two children. But do you think you're back to a place where you can call content? The contentment is definitely there. And um, though I never thought it was possible, and anybody that may find themselves in a position where I was a few years ago, and though it's still raw for me. Um, they see no light at the end of that tunnel, don't the they? The contentment will come. Mm-hmm. Um, part of happy would be that I have the projects, I have my writing, I have stuff to dive into. And I guess bringing meaning to Patrick and Dara's life is, is today with you here on the show to mm-hmm. reach out to other people that don't have an outlet or maybe suffering out there that the reason I would carry forward their story is that it's a huge meaning of their life to me. And um, though I have another other books in the works mm. and all, that mm. Two Sons Too Many book is the flagship. That's that's my monument to them. And, uh, and that will help them get through that grief that you went through. But also, you've also dived into it for a charity as well. 
um, Two Wheels for You. And maybe you could explain a bit more about the charity. Okay, so we, uh, my friend Keith, um, we had a friend in common, Pullet, and he died of a heart attack in his kitchen. And Keith, we wanted to raise some money for his family and he decided to establish a lap of Ireland on motorbike. Uh, Keith was an ex-road racing champion. Mm. And um, he was also very fond of Dara, um, my son. And the out in Tala Hospital, there's cry cardiac risk in the youth. And as a fundraising effort, we said, let's do Pullet's Lap with motorbike riders mm. and try to raise some funds where they're screening and supporting families who've lost people to sudden death. Mm-hmm. And so um, we did it last year, and we got a group of people out with us, and it's two nights camp and three days riding, and it's a full lap of Ireland uh, in aid of Cry out in Tala Hospital. And myself and Keith set this up, and we met some great people, and this June again we'll go. So the two wheels for you, you know, we set up on, on Facebook and Twitter and everything. So if you're a biker, can you join in? You can. You can come and register with us, and it's a small fee to register and hopefully join our fundraise effort, but definitely connect with us on the route. Mm. We'll leave out of Dublin and we'll go down through, you know, Waterford along Cork and, and finish up with a camp in West Kerry and mm. maybe a bit of grub and people get to mingle and meet new strangers and make new so friends. This is happening on the 21st, 22nd and 23rd of June. Yeah. And if people want to join in the can, it's all for a good cause. It's all for cry. And um, if you want to sign up for that, you can. You can go on to Facebook, Two Wheels For You. It's at Two Wheels For You or Twitter is at Two Wheels, which mm. is the number two, by the way, and the number four. So Two Wheels For You if you want to join up for that. The book, by the way, is called uh, Two Sons Too Many. I have a copy of it here. And I'm definitely going to have to have a read of this because what we're getting is literally highlights of your life. Yes. I mean, how you dealt with that kind of grief of losing But that's my children. project. That's one yeah. of the things that helped me out of grief. And I was with another um, psychologist one time and I, I'd known her from years ago, back when I was in trouble. She was involved with me as a kid. Mm. And I'd explain, she says, you're a bereaved parent. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. And I... I said, do I have a book I'd love you to read? I wrote it. And she said, oh, my God. Try and tell people in the group to write if they could. And Two Sons Too Many is the first. And the recent one, which I'd love to plug, yeah. is 17 and Life, um, which is another piece of memoir going back to when I was 17. So this is more about you, I suppose. It is about me and what it's like to be faced with very life-altering, changing decisions. And it happened for me at 17 to mm. get sober and give up the drugs and look to the value of life. Um, though I was forced, I mean, the, you know, I was in handcuffs and I was in jail, but mm. we all come to crossroads in our life that we got to make a decision. And I'm just raising the questions about are those decisions the determining factor for the rest of your life? A lot of people will talk about the secret and the manifesting stuff in your life and mm-hmm. I manifest good people and good attitude and all. Did I manifest my two babies in the ground? Mm-hmm. I can't buy into it as much, but the questions are there. It makes you ask a lot of questions. And I believe we have a lot of questions inside us. We also have a lot of answers inside us. And this is how you turn it to be a little bit more positive and to... It's only through my soul searching, mm. digging deep in my life because of the misery and tragedy that I've come to a spot to say, if you're willing to go easy on yourself and look inside yourself, you will find answers. And life is possible. Well, look, uh, if you want to support the charity, once again, you can go on there um, to Twitter. It's at Two Wheels For You or Facebook at Two Wheels For You. And if you're a biker there, it's called the Pulitz a Lap of Ireland. It's on the 21st, 22nd and 23rd of June for a good cause uh, for Cry in Tala Hospital. And also the book is called Two Sons, Too Many. And the new book is called Seventeen in Life. And they're on Amazon, by the way, Amazon.com. 
Co.uk. Yeah, whatever Amazon you want yeah, to go on. Whatever Listen, country you're It's in. been an intriguing story, a sad story. Yeah. Um, I, as a human being, a very difficult life you've had, but you've come through it. You have a much more positive attitude. I've spoken to you. We had a cup of tea earlier on. You have a much more positive attitude to life now. And it does put things into perspective. And I'm sure people listening at home are thinking to themselves, I'm going to take one quick look at my son and my daughter here now, give them a big hug. Because every single every that, single minute is valuable. That that is definitely the key of coming in and chatting with you today. Yeah. To any of your listeners out there that you know when you had mentioned it that if you have problems, mm. life seems horrible. It seems over. It's the most difficult thing you'll ever go through. There is always a way. There's always a light, and um, I'm living proof. My life is living. You got to keep going. Also, by the way, if you want to link uh, to that, uh, you can. If you go to our Twitter as well, and uh, at Noel underscore Boylan. Or if you go to our Facebook page, there'll be a link there to Aidan's story and where you can get those books as well. Listen, Aidan, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. I appreciate you sharing that story with us. Thanks a million. Real people, real opinions, real talk radio. The multi-award winning Niall Boylan Show. Classic hit.